Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Hello. So today's guest, let me tell you about him. He's a, definitely a disruptor. Um, a bit bizarre because he is the nicest disruptor I've ever met, nicest leader, but he is a progressive leader and growth catalyst. He's an experienced CEO and mentor with a demonstrated history of rapidly scaling companies in the med tech industry or medical device industry, I should say. Uh, he's skilled in medical devices, healthcare information technology, and he's got a strong focus in marketing strategy from Cornell University. I don't think all of those things fit together, but he makes them fit together. He's a medical industry veteran. He's a paradigm shifting device innovator. How do you like that? That's good. Yeah. If I use that? Yeah. He's a nationally <laughs> recognized mentor. He is the CEO of Infobionic, Stuart Long. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you. And wow, I'm glad we're recording this. I know, right? Thank Welcome to hear to somebody show. say that. It's, it's on a record, finally. <laughs> Paradigm yeah, shifting device innovator. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's very yes. nice of you. Yes. So we have you on the show because you are a disruptive badass. And the very first question we always ask our guests, right, is, you know, disruption is all about going against the status quo. When did you say that's fucking it? No more. Yeah, I'm changing you know, yeah, I'm 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 a person that has never taken the the normal path. I've kind of sought the the different paths, but I kind of got stuck in corporate life working for large scale companies. And um, it was after you know one too many assholes of a manager or or line of management that my my like moment when I had had enough of how companies are run and why it has to be a particular way. And I, I had a I heard a great a person told me directly that you know that we were talking about this. They felt similar to me, and they said, "Yeah, what what did the color of my socks have to do with my performance?" And that resonated with me. And I realized that I'm, I just had a, I'm going to go run a company, and I'm going to run it anti-status quo, which was when you know you had me at anti-status quo when I saw your <laughs> uh, on the website. So because um, I was fed up with PR firms too, right? It was just you know everything status quo, run run it a particular way. And you know, and, that ash holeish mentality is in that industry too. I mean, it's throughout corporate America, right? So I'm glad it runs rapid it. and, and, they, and they, 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 they seem to get promoted and, you know, and, and more well-regarded, you know, I don't think that's the case so much anymore, but, you know, but we test used for to that be. actually. Yeah. We actually test for it. And I think, you know, maybe in terms of kind of the, where the, the age of the market in terms of the, the, the people coming into the market, into the professional world, you know, it's, it's far less about, you know, um, being tolerant of that. Whereas, you know, historically it might, might've been a little bit more, but, but yeah, we actually test for that. We actually, um, we, we do analysis by roles that we hire and we look for a lot of psychological criteria for, you know, people that are maybe overly dominant and they're, they, you know, they don't listen. Um, you know, if you put a lot of these, you know, we have a coach that walks us through that and says, nope, that one's an asshole, you know, just keep really? going. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh, this is great. You have an so asshole barometer. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. So, uh, it's actually so yeah, it was when skill. I was tired of corporate America and made yeah. the decision, you know, that we're, I'm going to fundamentally change how a company's run, how, you know, you know, and, and we, we've got, you know, unlimited vacation rules and a whole bunch of you know, great rules, um, in terms of, uh, anti-status quo. And it's actually kind of entertaining when people come into the company and they're not used to that. And they'll be like, Hey, next Thursday, um, you know, I need to, you know, take off at one and, you know, go to the doctor. And I'm just like, I don't care. You, you don't, you know, stop explaining. As you long know, as you, you produce, right. You get the yeah, job it's a, done. It's what we call a row R O W E results only work environment. So you can do whatever you want, whenever you want from wherever you want, as long as the work gets done in a role model way. Right. And so um, that kind of you know mitigates the asshole component. Cause you, well, I, I'll never forget. I was in one more, I, I, I yeah, fired tell me. sales I have a question rep just, on be that. just before we were acquired by a private equity company. I had to call them up and say, look, I just, fired the number one producing guy because he was an asshole and they're like we trust your judgment right so um and you know and it, and it, it was a little shaky going through it but it, you know we ended up being better because of it so right well you obviously have a no asshole rule in your company which works do you think that has everything to do you know that's a disruption in itself do you think that has everything to do with being disruptive in your own market is that you have to have a disruptive culture or it's not going to work oh absolutely um i i think the the, you know, so, so part of, you know, we, we, we came out with a technology that's incredibly innovative. We've got a model that's very disruptive, which obviously part of the reason we're talking. Um, but if you stifle an organization, you know, to say that, you know, you, you, you're measured by how many meetings you have, how booked your calendar is, you know, who comes in first, who stays the latest, those are not things that matter to getting the work done, right? And if you value ideas and creativity and openness and um, we, we do employee engagement surveys. I, I've been doing these now for, uh, seven years yeah. and, um, you actually like uh, them. Uh, amazing because okay. you learn so much from your employees, right? Completely anonymous. We, we, we trademarked our culture. Um, we call it tacit, which means it's implied, right? And so if you look for these hallmarks of employees, and I'll, I'll tell you what tacit stands for. If you look for these hallmarks in people, race, religion, or creed doesn't matter if they have these hallmarks. You don't have to worry about your culture. Your culture does itself. Wow. So it's tacit. It's trust, accountability, creativity, innovation, and transparency. Wow. And it's book bookended by trust and transparency. And if have you trademarked this, we have yes. Okay. Yeah. So if uh, if we if we can, you know, we 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 want to we, we'll trust you with your your time and and what you do with it until the point where you prove that we can't trust you anymore. So it's up to you. It's your responsibility. Like an honor system. Yeah, exactly right. And what's interesting is when people aren't kind of following those rules, they, nobody has to tell. It's a kind of a peer measurement system. So the peers will kind of lean in and say, hey, you know, I need you to step up and you know, carry That's somebody else's backpack. Yeah, it is. It is. And so because I think you know, people the, are more afraid of their peers viewpoint of them than they are their managers at times. Right. And so part of, and part of that, um, you know, part of that culture, not only do we do engagement, um, we, as a matter of fact, we've, we've measured extremely engaged, which we're in the top 5% of all companies in terms of our engagement, every quarter running since I've been here and my last company as well. Um, and that goes from listening to your employees. And so, you know, that, that, you know, creativity and innovation of tacit is creativity is not being afraid, you know, the psychological safety to speak up in a meeting and, call out your manager or disagree with your CEO. 
um, to have have that that, that constructive you know ability um, to be able to have those conversations. But creativity is thinking it up, and innovation is putting it into action. So okay. whether it's a finance person coming up with a better way to do billing and AR, or it's somebody going, hey, maybe we need to like repackage this thing because it'll work better, or a sales rep coming up with a better way to sell. Right? I mean, it just it runs across. It's not just R and D people and marketing people right. coming. It up runs the gamut. Exactly. So you probably but, but give you, people a lot of creativity and innovation in areas that normally don't get it. You give them the ability to express that. Well, we challenge them with it, right? So we task people to do this, right? So we we've we we follow a, a system called objectives and key results. We use a software platform that measures what we call OKRs. And so every year I set the the top level of OKRs in a consensus with the group. Um, so we all agree on what those are going to be, typically around people, product, you know, dollars. Um, you know, customers, things like that. Um, and then each manager on the management team will set up their objectives that align to the company goals. And then each of their employees all set up their individual goals to align to the top level goal. So top to bottom, everybody is aligned completely and, and, and motivated to work together on things that really matter. And so we do weekly check-ins where- And that's your transparency. That's full transparency. Yeah, absolutely. So or it's ass. being, hey, look, I'm I'm gonna. Uh, I hired a new guy, and he's like, "Hey, is it okay? I'm, he's from you know a different country. I'm gonna go home for. Can I work from there for three months?" We're like, "Absolutely." Um, another <laughs> guy that. just bought two more houses in two different locations and wants to you know live you know full time you know outside of where where we hired him. And you know, it was like, "Absolutely, right?" Because I don't want geography to be the boundary that limits me from capability, right? So um, it's for really it's whoever is the best person, right? And so we you know, in addition to kind of all of those things, what kind of really kind of makes it gel is we do a, you know, a, a review process that's a peer review, 360 degree, right? So my entire staff reviews me, we get some of um, the peers, get some of their peers to review them rather than just, you know, top up, bottom down, and everybody sees that what everybody gets. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and so that we, we found that that was, the employees really valued it because they got really honest feedback that everybody and they could actually they, see what peer said what that's yeah good. absolutely yeah what they do hidden. is um it, a manager can assign a peer or you can allow the employee to pick their peer so they don't so you're not picking somebody who knows going to give them a good review yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so um and uh, it's pretty funny because those the, all those systems were two different companies um the engagement and the, the okrs and the, the review and um, they ended up one acquired the other one. So it ended up working out in our favor. So um, we, wow. you know, we, we've got it down to one company. So, yeah, so we're just, you know, full on, 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 and on, you know, I think disruption uh, capability within the, within the organization to think that way, think about failure as the biggest success, right? If we're, if we're successful, we're going to get complacent, you know, and in complacency, I can see it from a mile away entitlement. Well, it just doesn't exist here because we're, we're, um, we're really rigorous about, you know, making sure that we're constantly in a state of change, questioning everything, right? Anti-status quo. It's our company. We can't build but it without people. you've had to be. You've had to be because uh, I want you to tell me how you got into Infobionic, but there's been, there's been trouble in adoption of this, even though it's widely, it's becoming widely accepted now, right? Right. Yeah. But tell exactly. me this no asshole culture and always in the mindset of change and status quo and how you got into where you're doing, like the disruption that you're doing now. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I accidentally got into disruption on the, on the kind of the job front. Um, 
you know, I've always been kind of anti-status quo. I was always, you know, challenging my parents on why do we do it this way? <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so, um, you know, but it, it kind of goes back. I, you know, um, I, I took a different route on education, even though I was accepted into medical school right out of high school. Um, I got talked out of it uh, by my mom and, and a physician that, you know, I would have been 23 years old. And they and talked you out of it. They did only because I was, I would have been pretty young and they said the pressure of, a, you know, being 23 and, and a full-fledged doctor, they, so they said, Hey, you would go have to hated school, it. test out after two years and then go, you know, you know, and so I, I did that and um, I had way too much fun for a couple of years, um, but I, I certainly <laughs> enjoyed it. Um, but my mom was a home health nurse. She ran a, a big nursing home later and, and I got used to going on home health visits. I still have a rock collection from one of her patients from back when I was a kid. I mean, just no way. Like, she bagged him and wrote on him. It was it was just you know it's an amazing thing. But I learned the humility of healthcare um, because of you know patients you know being cared for in the home and nursing homes. And um, I in high school I became a certified nurse's aide. I volunteered at nursing homes. So I've always kind of had an altruistic motive. But none of my friends did that. Right? They were definitely um, no. thinking about that kind of thing. So so when push came to shove, if you went the medical route, like the medical school route, you I don't think you would have gotten that um, humility training. No, I think they train the opposite, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and you know, looking back, I wouldn't have changed the thing, right? If you look at lifestyle and and you know, payback on the loans and all that kind of stuff, my ROI is way higher, my quality of life is way right. better. <laughs> right. um, not to take anything away from physicians, they're my, you know, we, we sell to the doctors. Not um, for you though. Yeah. So, but that so what that did is it, it you know it led me through kind of a non-traditional route in education. So I still got lots of schooling in, but you know I went you know the kind of the technical school went to an X-ray, got through CT. I kept asking you know what what's the progression because I've always been I do one thing. What's the next thing? And so all of them were well. Hey, you can get into management in the hospital. There's lots of avenues. And I'll, I'll never forget one day I was working in the hospital and some guy goes walking down the hallway in the radiology department. He's carrying like six boxes of pizza. And wearing a tie, I'm thinking. I, I said, "Who's that guy?" And they're like, "Oh, that's the Kodak rep." And I'm like, "I want that job, right?" Because, um, <laughs> because you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, right? I, I, my dad came home in a new car. He's an accountant. I worked for H&R Block long, a long time ago. Self-employed forever today now. But I, I came home in a new car, and I got in. And I was like, "Wow, this is really cool to smell the whole thing." And I'm like, "Hey, Dad, you know what job makes the most money?" And he point blank said, "Sales." And Absolutely. so it was, it was that moment, and then watching that guy walk down the hall of pizzas where I was like, that's it. I'm, I want to go into sales. And I ended up doing, I went to work for a company and lo and behold, um, cause, cause the Kodak reps had a picture of their, of their picture on their, on their card. And what I, what I kind of, I didn't know about a vision board and I didn't used to write things down then was I wanted my picture on a Kodak card. So I ended up going to work for a very disruptive cardiology company. Long story, get to your point where I we actually this. were. Um, so medical images, you know, in radiology typically were film static image, 2D, look at it, hang it up on light. Um, I started out in cardiology because I went to echocardiography school. Um, I graduated, went directly into a management position, implemented a first-of-kind technology um, about doing recording cardiology, from, not from videotape, but digital, doing digital loops. And this was a company that had disrupted the whole field of how to record cardiac images. How? So what they do is they, they created a computer that instead of a, instead of a VCR built into the ultrasound machine, it was a digital hard drive that mm. did the recording, but you had to do really just short snippets um, because the, you know, when you recorded, it was a you know, pretty, uh, you know, sizable file. And back then uh, a terabyte of, of storage was about a million dollars. You know, you can buy it for You're $60, $70 today. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, wow. yeah, it's on your thumb drives, right? Yeah. I mean, a yeah. terabyte. Yeah. So now we talk petabytes and blah, blah, blah. Right. So um, so 
that was my first foray in, you know, crossing over from the clinical side into the business world. Mm -hmm. And I started out as somebody who would go out and train the customers how to use this. And, um, and I, you know, when I got it, I was like, well, you, this, you guys are totally messed up on how you're training this because I came from that world. And, and so again, I was very creative and trying to already start to change how things were done. And I was like, I, I, I want to go into sales the whole time. Do you have a sales job for me? And finally put me into sales. Um, great story. My very first sales call went to the deal did a demo at seven o'clock at night for a doctor. And he asked me for a discount. I'm like, I call my boss. I'm like, Hey, can I give a discount? And they're like, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. And I, and I, so I said, yeah. And I said, but you have to give me the check. And so my first sales call ever, I closed it and walked out with the check in my hand. That's so awesome. I, I knew and then I was you born were like, to do it. I'm hooked. <laughs> I'm, well, in my initials, my initials are actually SEL. So I think I was truly born to do it. Um, so, so then that led into radiology or more disruption. So I, I went to work for same thing. We were making digital, you know, going from film to digital. So I was involved with these two major shifts in medical imaging and radiology and cardiology. So kind of my core areas of expertise, right. um, ultimately that went into, um, using a web browser to do medical imaging when back in the day, it was no, you need a dedicated workstation with our custom software and dot, dot, dot. And nobody ever thought, you know, web-based applications would fly. And, and we were the first ones to be doing it in medical imaging. Um, later that turned into, uh, I got into the insulin dosing space because um, overdosing in insulin um, in the hospitals, uh, it's the third most dangerous drug to dose. Is it still that way? Will, it is. Yes. Um, wow. And so they still follow, most every institution follows a paper protocol that was built in the thirties. And, you know, it's 90% of the time it's wrong um, and nurses don't follow it or there's residual insulin. Um, Too much human error. Yeah. Whether there's extra insulin that was left in the ID line or, you know, some bodies, you know, people have different body tissue types and it lives in the interstitial tissues. And so you would end up chasing somebody's blood sugar to keep bringing it down, dosing, 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 and then you overdose them. And then that falls into a category of greater than 40% of the time you die. Um, so we did a, we had a piece of software that actually did the calculations and would predict um, the this residual insulin, how much was there. And so it would cause a big change to lower how you dose insulin, but it no stopped way. the overdosing. Yeah. So um, very disruptive, uh, 25 PubMed papers, but only the market growing at 1% or so. It's really hard to get you know, you know, physicians to change behavior, right? I saw a great uh, comic once where guys at a lectern and, and full of full of doctors and the guy says, you know, who loves innovation? Everybody raises their hand. He's like, who wants to do it? Nobody raised their hand, right? <laughs> that's um, what you're experiencing. So, yes, yeah. yeah. And it's been it's been that way, you know, since since I got in. That's why I say I kind of accidentally got in. I, but I've constantly been changing how technologists, clinicians and physicians, clinicians being, you know, uh, you know, physicians assistants, masters of nursing and so on, of, of changing workflow and and big changes, right? Because Doctors are trained, they're so specialized, they get in a habit of doing, you know, and I, I'll just kind of paraphrase it, but it's like three to five things repetitively over, over and over and over and over again, because time, speed, efficiency, mouse click counts, you know, we call mouse smiles, please don't put a cancel button on this screen and put it on that side of the screen on the next screen. It's all got to, it's got to, you know, I, I want to push a button and see the image in sub-second. I don't want to wait, you know, 10 seconds. So all of that, you know, really, really mattered over time. So all the way fast forward now out to Infobionics. So one- so you've got I, disruption, 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 and you learned to sell, right? Yes, constant, yeah. And, and now, I've learned that there's a scale about disruption that there's, there's parts of disruption that are nearly impossible to get adoption, to your point about adoption, to 
it's still difficult, but it's not going to be as hard. And when I came to when Infobionic called, the the kind of testing that we do, it's been around since the 60s. So I, it wasn't anything new. We were just changing how you have access to the information. We were simplifying it greatly. Not to mention, it was the first product that ever worked with that actually had reimbursement. So we, I'd always been involved with trying to change hearts and minds just because it was a better idea and it was more convenience and there was really no ROI. So, but when I, when, when they, when they knocked on my door, one, it was close to my heart. Um, it was non-invasive cardiology. I knew all about it. I, I kind of left radiology and cardiology to, to, to go into insulin, which I knew nothing about, um, which was a great learning and how it all connects now back to the heart. Uh, and, and, and the idea that we were improving care dramatically because Typically, the, the way the systems work in the market is there's pretty, you, you wear it, you know, sometimes you, you go to your doctor, he gives you to a third party, it takes like almost, you know, five, seven days by the time you finally get it on, if you get it on, um, and then you have to wear what it. What are you wearing exactly? So our listeners. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, looks like a recording device and it'll have some wires and you, you attach it to it. And I've seen duct tape, I've seen saran wrap going around this thing, you know, just really innovative ways to try to wear some of these old uh, older type devices, it's improved a lot. Um, you know, now they try to communicate to your cell phone, which is inherently has some challenges. But the the point being is that you wear it for however long it's been prescribed. And um, the the rules are that, you know, if you're ordering a 30-day test, which tends to reimburse more money, you need to make the device available for 30 days. And typically they'll make you wear it for 30 days, even though you might've had your problem on day two. Mm. But in some in some cases, the devices aren't communicating enough information or they're not communicating off enough or they don't communicate at all. So you might've had an event, missed it, don't know what you're missing. And then you, the test ends at 30 days and then you got to mail it back. And it goes to a third-party queue where kind of call it a cube farm where techs are sitting around and it's in the queue. They get it, plug it in a computer. The device picks off what it thinks is important. Those techs review it narrow it even more down to a single piece of paper uh, on a PDF, and then, you know, store probably a limited amount of time, but the rest of that data gets trashed. So they throw away about 99% of the data. And then um, it gets to back to the cardiologist. Yeah. yeah and still using fax machines, believe it or not. Um, you know, no. but it's more, it's more vogue. Now you get a PDF file and, 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 you know, integrating it into the EMR is more common, but okay. in the outpatient world where it's in a doctor's offices, it's very, it's a lot less common. So you still, still literally see the, the fax machines and the PDF, but depending L- on the literally, literally, literally still a fax machine. Yeah, so absolutely. T- tell me about this process. Cause we haven't even talked about how this disruption occurred yet, but how long does that take? This antiquated process. Um, depending on the the uh, there's there's tests that can be ordered for two days. Um, uh, you can uh, order a test for fourteen day, and that needs to be available in case you don't find something until day fourteen. Um, then you need to continue monitoring for up but to thirty afterwards, days. Afterwards, it goes to the queue. It get, like goes through the queue and the technician. Yeah, How long does that take? Kind of on average, it's it's by the time you put somebody on the order the test to the time you get your end of the results, it's about a four week process. When and there's there's one test that's a it's a two day test, so it wouldn't take as long. But even in that world, we have personal experience with our employees trying to put their kids on you know on these things, and you know even though it's a two day test, they didn't get the results for two weeks. Um, you know, so there's there's still this kind of, um, if you just think about the supply chain on your medical data, you know, it, the, the device to acquire, it comes, you know, remotely from a third party, not from your doctor. The, the third party has to work with your doctor to figure out your insurance coverage. Does the third party actually have coverage for your insurance? 
Um, you know, do they have contracts? Uh, and then once they acquire that data, their third party gets it. They got to figure out how to get it over to the doctor. Um, you know, instead of sending it electronically, it's usually a PDF file. So it's this massive, what we call clinical compression. Um, you know, back when you did videotape, you recorded 45 minutes of, of scanning a person's heart, but I, but the doctor only saw two or three minutes, right? Because it was, and up that's to the, the job two or three to... minutes that the technician decided was the most important they, and the rest of the 99% yeah. gets trashed. And you gotta, you got, and there's two, there's two compounding problems is one, you got to have really good techs. And two is the technology itself has to be really good because sometimes the lead will pop off. And if it's, if your oh, device shit. isn't communicating, then the patient may not notice it until they wake up and maybe they were <laughs> oh off lead for hours. But then it might say, well, you were in a particular arrhythmia for a specific amount of time. And that specific amount of time generates a certain kind of treatment. But if it was false because one of the leads was off, you weren't really monitoring. Um, so it's really hard for a physician that I've got this piece of paper and I noticed this, that, oh, it, that there's no signal for eight hours or 12 hours here, but it says that you were, your burden was, was this percentage or whatever, that, that doesn't make any sense. So now I've got to call the third party, which is generally like, I'm not going to do it. I have my staff do it. It's a series of handoffs, press one, press two, finally get somebody on the phone. Hey, we need to look at the data from whatever date. And they're like, we don't have it, or we do have it. And we'll get that over to you. And meanwhile, the patient's gone. <laughs> they have 15 minutes with their patient, right? So, oh my God. so it just, it's just a, it's a, what I just call, it's a, it's a, it's a, a supply chain issue that like, it's when, you know, FedEx solved, you know, overnight delivery. Right. Um, you know, and, and how UPS has solved that, you know, in terms of kind of their, their supply chain. So, you know, fundamentally different is, you know, we, we have a cloud-based solution. We have a little device that um, basically has, you know, wires that attach to it and it streams the device, the data off of you in near real time, actually as, as fast as it'll come off. And about the time from the time that it acquires it, goes to the cloud, gets processed, gets QC'd to make sure it is what it's supposed to be. And then back to a physician, it's about three minutes. So you do um, a quality control test to take out the false positives or the false negatives or whatever, right? Or, or just plain artifact, or just, you know, okay. wires jiggling around. And so there's uh, there's AI that does that, but then we also have a human that verifies a, a, a step past that. We have a so manual we, oversight. We do, right. But in um, in our, the way we do it, we require far fewer people um, you know, to be able to do those things yeah. considering the and traditional model. Yeah, far fewer model. time. Yeah, exactly. And it goes now, directly to the cardiologist in his practice or in the ER. In, or anywhere, anywhere, anybody who's, who's credentialed to see that data. And it does it in near real time and it sends 100% of the heartbeat. So you're not getting a PDF looking at just the event. You're looking at an event like and you can play it back and watch it scroll by as if you're sitting in the hospital with a telemetry monitor watching this go by and you can go, you know, this is a, a 15 second pause, your heart stops beating, let me look at the onset, look at the, look at the offset, or you had uh, a run of tachycardia that was pretty severe that started and went for an hour you know you're going to get a snippet of that on a pdf file where now i can go back an hour and three minutes and look at what was happening before it started yeah that's and i can be look at it for after i mean i know it's concluded. revolutionary but it's got to be to these cardiologists yeah um and so that's not even the disruptive part right so that's the, that's innovative right um, okay so, so what's <laughs> believe the disruption not, it's pretty cool so you know the disruptive part is we changed the um who has control right so right now the the, the third party has control because they do the work right so 
uh, when you get your blood drawn, right? So you go to your doctor's office, you go to the a lab, you go, well, yeah, the or you go to the, you go, you, they either draw it and send it out to the lab or you actually go to the lab yeah, or right? you have it's, to go to the a, lab. It's a third party, right? Yeah. Um, they call them independent diagnostic testing facilities. It right. doesn't matter if you do blood or you're doing behavioral health or you're doing cardiac monitoring reporting. Um, so they're all third party service providers. And that's a, that's a, uh, that's a name that uh, the government or CMS gave to, you know, institutions. Okay. Like um, so the, the idea is that we have, you know, that, so the, the lion's share of the reimbursement, because the, the way the reimbursement works is the doctor gets what's called a professional fee. They're the professional, they order okay. the test and they get the result okay. and they get the, they get a fee for doing that. Okay. Now the people who do the work bill what's called for the technical fee. So the techs are doing all of that. And that's generally the lion's share in, in our world on, you know, we concentrate on the longer term monitoring, more complex cases. That figures about $700 for the technical part and about $27 for the doctor. So the doctor is billing 27 bucks and the third party is taking you know, 95% of those reimbursement. And in some cases that's okay for the doctors because they don't wanna deal with it. There may be their one doctor, they don't have enough volume. It doesn't make sense to own it. Um, but for the most part, when you know, a doctor is able to do you know, two things, one is take on a vastly improved clinical system to be able to have what you know a, a telemetry style system, you know non-emergency system for detecting arrhythmias, and then also because they own it and they're doing the technical work, they actually can bill for this technical fee. So it's a pretty substantial change yeah. for them, and that's the disruptive part. So we have fundamentally disrupted an entire market, and we're moving the money away from the third-party vendors, and we're giving it all to the providers. And that's the, that's the disruptive part because now the, and that's been the hard part to get well, people that to is actually disruption believe in because it. disruption gets rid of, it changes the value network. It gets rid of some part of that value equation that's been there before. Exactly. And when I heard that our co-founder, who's a guy named Dr. Jeremy Ruskin, and he's, uh, he founded the first electrophysiology lab where you do catheter ablations and put in pacemakers and things like that. Um, distinguished physician at Harvard. Um, he's another you know, very, badass. Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a, he actually wrote the book on it, literally wrote the book on it. Um, you know, but, it, but his point, he, he had a, you know, an OF moment, right? Where he's like, this has to change. I, I can't take it with multiple vendors, multiple rewards, multiple logins, faxes over here, PDFs over here, um, different devices for every kind of test. There has to be a way to change, right? And so when I learned about why the company was founded and, the ability to improve care so dramatically because we we we've done a study we we cut you know we we studied AFib which is like the number one arrhythmia in the world you know we cut diagnosis from you know diagnosing in seven to eight days down to less than three days two point nine five days and that was a three year retrospective on all published data so a hundred percent faster we give a hundred percent of the data and a hundred percent of the heartbeats. So we took innovation and we deployed it in a way that completely disrupts the market and you know, it's been hard, right? You know, we thought we'd just sit by the fax machine and take orders and it's hand-to-hand <laughs> -hand combat on every one of these because it's so ingrained. It's been this way for, you know, for decades. So, so part of your biggest challenge is acceptance. And you would have thought, I mean, okay, well, first of all, the thing that ding, ding, ding for me that I don't even know if our listeners caught, but you've, you've cut out the third party, which I want to talk about that in a minute. But um, but now the reimbursement goes to the physicians. That's gotta be what, what is that increase in revenue for them? 
like percentage wise, just on average? Uh, it's a 25 to 30 fold increase. So instantaneous. Yeah. The first use of the device. Yeah. And you, yeah. So you thought you're going to be sitting by the fax machine or getting calls or whatever, getting all these orders. Right. But that hasn't been the case. No, quite, quite um, the because opposite. It, well, because you're asking somebody to change how they do their work. And when I go back to my scale now of disruption, so it's, you know, it's, we're using AI and algorithms and that was the easier part to get to people to accept that we're going to do a bunch of the work on the AI side to make your job more efficient. They yeah. accepted that right out of the gates. Whereas in insulin, you know, an endocrinologist is like, I am not going to let a computer tell me how to dose insulin, period end. <laughs> Not going to happen. Two That's totally it. different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. They're like, forget so, it. Um, and so the, the idea that the physicians have to do more work, right? And that's, that's the thing. Um, now, I'll, I'll temper that with, we've done a really great job with the use of the software and how to do inventory management and order the tests, seamless EMR integration, um, and you know the, how to do the hookups. The device is, you know, it's it's really simple. There's a button on the front that you can push if you want to. In many cases, the, for the patient, you don't have to do anything. I mean, the best thing you can do is just you don't have to push the button. Docs like for the button push because they like to know that the patient was feeling something when the AI picks out something and, and does that. Um, all told, you know, the, the you know we we make the front end that what we call the, the the front end of the front office much more efficient because the people that were doing all the work with the third party exchanging information, yeah. insurance information, pre-authorization, um, you know, getting maybe potentially one art kind of the test we do mostly, you get a daily report, techs have to take that in, ingest it, make sure, you know, do we tell the doctor right away? How does that all work? Get time with the doctor. They stop doing all of that. Um, and then, so they're doing, they're not sharing the patient, the, the insurance information anymore. And they're doing all that work in house. And, you know, it's, it's just it's infinitely more efficient. So we, we, we increase the efficiency on the front office the docs will spend more time because they actually now have to stop and do the interpretation. Now, it may sound like a foreign concept, but if you've got a cardiac CT scanner or you're doing echocardiography or if you're doing a stress test on a treadmill and, and you're a cardiologist, you're already doing that. You're already doing the interpretation of the reports. You're sitting down in a little windowless office somewhere and pulling up the studies and dictating into a microphone and you're doing that work already. So we're not asking them to do anything completely out of the normal, but you would think we were pulling out their fingernails um, because, you know, in, in some cases, you know, so it's not the, really you know, even the front office thing. That was the, the, the main issue for them. It's just, they're having to now read and evaluate this. Whereas before it was a much, it was a, maybe it was less time for them. I don't know. It, it, far less time because they made, they wrote a prescription and a report showed up. Mm. And that just became, you know, the thing is, is there's, there's a, you know, in healthcare, deeply embedded habitual patterns and people, they just don't want to pull up the corner of the rug because they don't want to find out what's under, under the rug. Yeah. Um, but the corner and, of the rug underneath it is a shit show. Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, the, the professional really affecting places, patient care. Exactly. Yeah. And they didn't, you know, it's, 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 again, you don't know in those systems, you don't know what you're missing in terms of things that are occurring around the events. And, and, you know, we've kind of changed all that. So we've had to change and reorient. How people look at it. The other, the other thing is, is when you refer out to a third party, you don't pay any money. You just get the test and everybody makes money by billing the insurance company. So the doctor gets his 27 bucks. He's happy. He gets the test done, gets a report. He's done it. That's the status quo, right? Been that way right. forever in a day. Um, and I'm like, oh my God, I love this anti-status quo. We're going to rip it up. We're going to change it. And everybody's going to buy it. We're going to, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll be a billion dollar company by the end of the year. Let's see. Um, you know, and it's only, it's October, right? And, and you know, 
you know, we're five years in and, and, you know, we're doing, we're doing amazing. Right. But, um, but we, you know, so, but our system, you have to buy it, you have to own it. So we're asking somebody to go from a system where they've never spent a dime. Um, they don't realize actually realize that they're losing money. You have to demonstrate the fact that, Hey, you're only getting 27 bucks, but did you know your front office is actually, you know, spending this much money of their expense time yeah. dealing with a third party. Um, you know, so you're, and then you turn around and ask them to pay tens of thousands of dollars for inventory. And, and the first thing is, well, how many more people do I need to hire? And, you know, the point is, is, you know, as you, you know, it, the, the system is pretty efficient. If you're not a huge customer, you can get by with on your staff because we do work shifting. You know, when you get into, you know, hundreds of devices, you start to have a staff, but then you realize the economic benefit of, of that, you know, it becomes, you know, it helps, it helps your organization. Um, and it was really helpful during the pandemic, right? Because people stopped going to the offices and they were able to mail the devices out. Yeah, and these out. cardiology offices, uh, practices were shut down. They weren't considered essential. Is that right? Um, they, yeah. So it wasn't that they weren't considered. I mean, it was just that people stopped going, you know, the elective procedures in hospitals, right. they, those, you know, right. and then the semi-elective stopped. Um, you know, but, you know, patients were like, hey, um, I'm not going to go to my appointment because of COVID and I don't, and you know, they just stopped and uh, employees were getting sick. So they had so they to close the offices. They can monitor them, telehealth, this is And now that's where we found right? our center. Yeah. So, and you I kept mean, many offices alive during the we pandemic. We did. We did, yes. in fact. Yeah. And so we were able to, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, terrible that the pandemic hit. Um, what, what, what. What it forced, though, was the government to sit up in its chair and say, we have to react to being able to allow physicians to continue to practice care, right? right. And if you would have asked me in, you know, uh, December of 2019, would doctors be running telehealth systems and doing, you know, video consults at 80% of their patient volumes and yeah, we would have said, Hell no. fully reimbursed and patients fully covered, yeah. we would have all been going, hey, what, do, you know, what are you smoking, right? So, <laughs> um, but, you know, COVID actually from, a, from a, our industry, it was a time warp. It, it shot us forward 10 years and we came out on this other side and all of a sudden, you know, the telehealth market was kind of sitting around used to the way the market was reacting to the market's behaving, they're overwhelmed, right? You know, couldn't keep up, right? You know, uh, we had customers that were running backup telehealth systems, free freeware. If this one fails, we'd use this one, you know, because it would be too busy. Um, and what, what happened That's was- That's a good is, problem to have. Yeah, and so we put together a quick program that allowed us to get devices into the patient's homes from the offices. Doctors were able to run telehealth visits, get reimbursed at the full rates of office visits. Patients Unreal. didn't have to be concerned about- you know, were their insurance going to cover it? And they were able to look at their telemetry signal with the, in monitoring while they're having the patient on the phone. And it turned out that they were able to treat their patients dramatically better. And you know, I've done a few telehealth visits as well. And my doctor's never late. They're always on time. They're never late. I know. It's yeah. True. And so I think after the pandemic, going to the doctor or having telehealth has been so much better because I never have to wait. They're always on time. Even if I go to the doctor, the protocols are in. They're so worried about getting everything correct that I get in and get out, right? Right. Yeah. All my, I do all my paperwork. They're very explicit about the instructions. They've already right. seen it. If I need to send a picture of my sore thumb, I have to click a we picture. We don't want you waiting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. So, so, but that felt, it was the same thing, right? There was even a paper published, like, where did all the heart attacks go? Because people just stopped yep. going to the doctor and that was dangerous, right? People are like, okay, I'm not going to go. So, so, um, so from from that perspective, you know, we we're, we're purpose built to be in the home. That's our job, and we not only have a great clinical solution and a great 
you know, innovation on the supply chain of your medical data. And not only did we shift, you know, and disrupt the market in terms of being able for physicians to have control and have what we call, you know, the, you know economic ownership um, and the benefits to go alongside of that, you know, but we were able to improve care dramatically because of the, the, the quality of the signal that we have in our, our device. And we ended up um, winning uh, a deal with the Mayo Clinic and uh, they went out and did an exhaustive search in the industry. Um, uh, they That's looked so at all bad. the vendors and uh, when they found out about us and we were, we got further along with them they're like, you know, we'd never even heard of you guys. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, cause we we're still pretty new. Right. And, yeah. and so, um, you know, come to find out that, you know, uh, they, we, we, they were looking at, um, you know, we were at them in our R and D offices and we had kind of a little, you know, device timeline of all the devices our R&D group has developed over the last 30 years. And, you know, the doctors were like, oh, I remember this device. That was and like, you guys built that? I mean, it was, so it, it lent a lot of credence to, we've got some real smart minds that are behind this. And it's no wonder the adoption took off once people start to understand the model. And uh, simultaneous to the Mayo Clinic, we, uh, we struck a deal with the largest independent cardiology group in the US. When I say independent, that means they're not owned by a hospital. So, um, and, and you know, uh, we made great strides there during the pandemic. We had great you know, use cases. You guys, were, you guys were there with us on that. And, you know, 80 year old woman at home, they, you know, given her medicine, it wasn't working. And we were watching her heart rate, you know, uh, you, know uh, you know, watching her heart from remote, uh, you know, helping her out. And, when it was time to get people to the hospital, we didn't send them to the emergency room, bad place to be, admit them directly into a safe place, do a procedure, right? And so, you know, when when you have experiences like that, where um, you're, you are able to improve care dramatically, you get a, a signal quality that isn't normal, it's disruptive in itself in a remote care setting. And then you've got the economic element um, where we finally gotten to our point where we've hit our stride and the, the, the mindset has shifted. And I'll go one more to say that um, uh, we recently just launched the website with a, a group called the Mayo uh, Clinic Cardiovascular Services. And Mayo Clinic will actually provide the IDTF services with our product, um, similar to um, what most of our competition does. So what we've done yeah, is we've we've not only you know have this ability to be reckoned with. Now, yeah, right? we've not only had the ability to to enable the provider to use the device for themselves, but we've enabled the provider now to go to market and be the first provider ever to provide these services on a national scale. And it's always resonated with Dr. Ruskin's original idea was he wanted to get this into the hands of the providers. What does that mean the first time a provider can offer this on a national scale? Like paint that picture for me. So um, right now, in terms of uh, these tests, I'll name the tests, um, may not mean anything, but I'll kind of explain them. There's what we call a two-day Holter test. This is a test you wear for 24 to 48 hours. Um, because of the limited amount of time, roughly 80% of the time, it's non-diagnostic, meaning you didn't find anything. Mm. So typically then they'll go, okay, we want to do another test, bring the patient back in, put on a different device. That's a 14 to 30 day test. And, you know, there's, you know, then that, you know, there's how, how that works. Um, so with our device, we can, you know, still do that two day Holter, but we also, rather than having a different device to do an event or a mobile cardiac telemetry or what we call now extended Holter, our device does all of those. In fact, our device only does one kind of monitoring. It does telemetry, and it's just a different kind of report that we produce based on whatever kind of coverage that the facilities have. So 
what we mean by the first provider, Mayo Clinic is the first hospital or healthcare suite of personnel that are going to go to market and provide this service to other hospitals instead of a business, a vendor, mm-hmm. or a third party. I get so it. they're the first ones to do it, and they chose us as their vendor, That's not only right. for their own internal studies, but as their partner to go forward on this initiative. And we're wow. you know, we couldn't be we couldn't be more excited. Wow. Well, okay. So you've got this disruption. Now you're start. You've gotten this education barrier that you've had to overcome, but then it for the pandemic forced people's hands to like actually have to confront it right so now you're winning on that and you have the mayo clinic right who have you like pissed off because anytime there's disruption and okay were the third parties pissed off i mean anytime this happens there is that part of the market or the market share that shifts and people get really pissed yeah, yeah. Well, um, so there's there there were some vendors in the space that had a, a history of litigation against their competitors as a strategy, and that's that's not uncommon. It's unfortunate, um, but uh, I think that as you defined it, um, one of our competitors, one of the biggest ones in, in the industry, um, uh, qualifies for that, and they they went after us very early on, uh, going back to 2015. And um, we're really persistent and have been, you know, for the last six and years. And when you say competitors, like a, a like the the third party vendor type competitor that like is shutting third party out. vendor, yeah. yeah they, so that they would were be the, a competitor. They were I the industry it. leader, um, you know, billion dollar company. Right. Um, they were just recently acquired for almost three billion dollars. Um, so you know, definitely, you know, somebody, you know, you, you know, because we're an existential threat to the industry. Um, now, I think I personally was a little naive in the beginning to think that we were going to wipe out the entire IDTF industry because, um, you know, now now five years in, Did I realized there's a place. think that you might have pissed somebody off during that? Yes. <laughs> well, I fully expected it, right? And and I love being an ankle biter. Right? Yeah, I love it when people call me an ankle biter because um, you know, you guys, I know, you know you that's guys what are, chihuahuas did back in the day. Yeah, they were they're they were know, badass little dogs, right? Yeah. yeah, they were. What was it, the Incas or whatever? They used them to like go after and bite the ankles of their enemies. Like, yeah. oh, did I didn't you know, know that. that. Yeah, no. in mass, oh, I love right? The analogy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I learned that. this when I was in Peru, right? So, so little... now I know what an actual ankle biter is. That's awesome. Now you okay. know. Yes, that's so great. It's not Good. just one. Can't think of thousands of chihuahuas coming at your. So anyway, yes. you're you're okay. a chihuahua. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I love to, you know, back. I've, you know, I remember I had a guy I worked with, and then he went to one of my competitors, and he's like, "Ah, you're an ankle biter," and I took, you know, he was at, uh, I think, twenty percent share, and I took eighteen percent of his share away. Um, uh, you know, at one point. So, you know, I, I just love that ability to, you know, kind of start and grow and create and that, that kind of falls into the disruption. But yeah, we, we sufficiently, um, but I, and I think we only made them more angry because we won every single assertion every for the last in litigation, in you litigation, yeah, course. in courts, all public. And, um, you know, we're, we're at the tail end of, of, you know, kind of wrapping all this stuff up. And, you know, we still feel, you know, real confident there because, you know, we've, we've, we've won it all, all the way through. So, but you um, won it because you've had a, a very good purpose, a very altruistic purpose that really ultimately helps the end user. Right. I mean, that's a whole thing. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and we had good counsel along the way. I got, I got to hand it to counsel, Let's right. And, and shout out to um, counsel. Yeah. But, but, it, you know, uh, you know, not only just, you know, in terms of, you know, of, of, you know, the, you know, kind of the, the litigation aspect of that, but good counsel on, 
you know, from our founders and how to operate. And, and, you know, we're a very honest, very transparent. I mean, we used to have our price on the website, you know, until, you know, you know, when we really dug deep on, you know, the, when we're, because of litigation, you get challenged on the validity of your model. They try to disprove it, right. You know, is it legal? So we spent a bunch of time making sure that all of that and, you know, exactly what we can say. So, um, so, but, but, you know, we're a very honest company, you know, we don't, you know, we obsess about our customers, you know, we don't worry about the competition, you know, they're going to be there. We have to keep our, our eye on the market, um, you know, but we've got a, we've got a plan and, you know, we, we continue to execute on that. And we, we look for our employees to have experiences when they're running up against competition to come back and say, Hey, we're struggling with this. And, you know, a long time, you know, I, I learned uh, in uh, my pragmatic marketing uh, training, was a great line, right? It's like when somebody gives you their opinion, when a salesperson gives you their opinion, your response is, your opinion, although interesting, is irrelevant, right? Because sales reps deal with the objection. I'm a sales guy, so I can say it. Yeah. You know, they're just dealing with what's stopping me at that sale. Um, you know, but but we honor that um, and and reward it and recognize it for anything, um, no matter how big or small. And And that's what keeps us on the horizon of innovation and disruption right and so we've we we knew are the objections you actually welcome them so you can actually absolutely well how do you learn right if we don't know what they are we become complacent and then we become complacency leads to entitlement and that's those are two killers deal breakers period again killer you know um it's not uncommon and and you know this but i know this in my own industry right PR and crisis management, you know, when you have disruptors, they do go against the behemoths or they do go against those have, that have been, you know, had the market share. Um, and litigation is a tool to knock out smaller competitors, right? Yes. Um, and so what would you say, besides being very transparent and having good counsel and so forth, like what really helped you get through that? So companies do experience this. And I think some of them are a bit naive that they're never going to have that happen. Yeah. I think I can, um, I'll I'll break it. I think I've got three, three good reasons, right? One is help me remember that I said three, um, the, the absolute, um, sanctity and honest to goodness truth that we were not in violation or infringing. We just weren't doing it. So we knew we would prevail. Now, oftentimes that may not be the case because litigation can win or you run out of money beforehand. trying to yeah. prove that you're right, right? Um, right? And so I think then the, the, the next number two was we've got investors that believe in us. You know, we had investors come into the organization when the, when the suits were active, they knew what the risks were, and they, but they knew we were onto something. We you know, I, I, I was on for one hour before I did my first pitch to go raise capital. And the, you know, my first job, my first, my first priority when I came on, like, day. what do you want to do first? One of my board members are like, you need to go Nate, raise around. Um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm making that sound much simpler than it went, but, um, you know, so I had to do a C round, right? Um, we, we wrapped up some B rounds. Um, so uh, what would it be a normal process? Six months-ish, you know, maybe nine at the most turned into, you know, an 18 month raise. And, you know, in the world of fundraising, you know, if you do, if you get a failed raise, right, you get a bruise in the market and a lot of investors don't want to take a look at you. Right. And, right. and I did over 80, you know, pitches that, you know, just didn't met no. And, and the single number one reason was litigation. Um, 
but we, 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 we kept our persistence. We worked in networks and, you know, I, you know, I, I gave one of my investors what, you know, the 12th man award, right. You know, 12th man on the football field. Cause he's, he was just so involved with being helpful, um, you know, through the really, you know, uh, growing, you know, you know, growing the company was hard enough, right. You know, um, hiring people and, but always being limited because we were spending, I was spending more on litigation than I was spending on the company. Yeah. So, so, you know, and, and then we had a, another, you know, large investor come in in 2018 who, um, you know, really believed in what we were doing and, and because of their belief and, you know, you know, they're, they're ready to throw down and fight. Right. Um, and so because of that belief in, 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 um, they liked our profile and they liked the people, right. That's really important. Um, uh, they came in and, and they renewed our confidence. And, um, so, and I, and so the, the third leg of that, or number three is the employees, myself included. Right. So, you know, it's, it's hard to be in this position. You know, they say it's lonely at the top because you, you know, a lot of times you don't really have anybody to talk to. Um, and that's why I say having a mentor, uh, is, is a key yeah. deal, which, which I do. Right. And I'm, and I, you know, and being a mentor, um, you know, but it's, it's sometimes when you just get knocked over the head time and time after again, bad news after bad news and no to this and no to that. And, and it wears on you. Right. And so sometimes that shows up in your, in your mood at work or your personality, um, you know, and, and as a leader, right. Um, and, and as my management team, we work really hard to manage that. And that's, you know, we do that through communication, by the way, and every week in check-ins, you rate on a scale of one to five, how are you feeling? So we're checking your feelings, not your engagement, but how are you feeling? And if somebody's running at a whatever, a three or four or five, and all of a sudden it dips to a one or a two, we're like, hey, what's going on, right? It gives us a chance to get in front of it. Yeah. Um, but but by that virtue, it it not only changed the landscape of our, renewed our, our confidence and our vigor because we knew we were going to make it through, but it, 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 it changed kind of the personality of the company because we were now going to say, we know we're going to win this. We're going to get through it. Right. And, and there was a time the month before the pandemic, we, we reached the point where we actually had won all the, we had won all the litigation and we had no pending litigation. Then the pandemic hit. Right. So it was, um, you know, it you was crazy. Make this shit up. You just, I know. And, and really? by every measure, by every measure, we shouldn't be here. Right. The, the difficulty. Um, but the planet earth the, for you <laughs> the level exactly the, the level of perseverance though by the staff um it, it's just extraordinary and so when the pandemic hit right we had to make a bunch of changes right so you know we're already it's already we already we, we were already lean we had to get leaner um but we had a really big customer base that we had to maintain and, and take care of so you know we ended up really you know focusing on just taking care of our existing customers and so, you know, we knew we weren't going to be taking on new customers because the market wasn't going to be there. But surprisingly to us, we sold more devices in the history of the company. To, I mean, to date, we sold more in one year than we'd ever sold in the, all years yeah. combined. And that's yeah. been five years. So yeah, in, yeah. In, in 2020. So we had we had amazing growth, big, you know, big wins. Um, we, you know, we've been able to bring a lot of, the, you know, you know, uh, the talent back. It's funny because you, you talk about, you know, you, you really want to pay attention to your top talent because, you know, you know, the 80-20 rule. You know, and, and I was having a, a, a session with my mentor, and he's like, "You really got to pay your your your, your 20, top twenty percent." I'm like, "The entire company's the top twenty percent." Yeah, we weeded them out. Yeah, like, we we, <laughs> we just went through this, right? So, so, so we were have bringing no back you know, some of the old so you top probably 20%. weed them out all the time, right? Yeah, well, we, yeah. So from the beginning, we, yeah, we were pretty lucky that we didn't have we, there wasn't a lot to begin with, and right, and, exactly. And yeah, we we don't have any now, so 
Um, yeah, so yeah, and, and so yeah, it's it's just it's been an incredibly wild ride. You know, uh, innovation and disruption does not happen overnight. You know, we had a we had a failed market uh, launch attempt. We you know the first product never made it to market. Um, the first iteration, the first idea, right? Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think disruption is it sounds awesome and it's really cool. I'm finally for the first time experiencing at a mass scale like this that when it happens, it's it's a phenomenal feeling. I've gone through some great firsts and we've been really successful making some changes, but I never, I was never the CEO of the company when we did it. Um, you know, even, even when I was at the insulin dosing CEO there, it, we just, we couldn't change the hearts and minds. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's impressive uh, to see the staff that I work with rise, right? It's um, like their point of working is not to go to work. It's there, they get up and communicate and start, you know, um, you know, uh, making headway on, you know, what they said they were going to do last week when we check in, what was my progress against what I said I was going to do last week. Okay. If some people only have one thing they're going to do this week, others have a laundry list of things and only got three or four of them done. Um, you know, and we stop and check and measure and make sure that those are always the right things. And we pivot immediately if we, if we need to, um, and you know, all the goals and objectives are li literally, you know, we set them out quarterly. I set them out annually, but it breaks down to a weekly measurements. Um, and it's just been impressive to see such talent, um, like, uh, you know, become so co cohesive, coalesce is, I think yeah. that's the right word. Really rise to it. Well, they've had a lot of adversity. I think groups sometimes with a lot of adversity and you have, they, they can do better with that Absolutely. challenge because they are such a core group and they have Absolutely. a purpose. That and they and you have them. to reward and, and recognize that. Right. So, you know, we, we, we've got a system where we don't, you know, we, we tried to stay away from monetary, you know, spot rewards. Um, so we would give out experiences. Um, we work with a company that gives out day at the spa brewery tour, you know, night at the movies. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool. Um, and, and we use a, we use a thing called workplace, which is like a Facebook. It is back in fact, Facebook for, uh, inside, but it's, it's not for work. It's social engagement. It's about putting so pictures taking, of your yeah. kids. That's awesome. But when you're, you know, when you do your, when you do your, it's a company called Bluebird. When you do your blue board, you know, part of the requirement is, Hey, you got this gift, but you have to, you have to share your experience on workplace. So, and there's a psychology of this, they call it, it's the afterglow where people get to relive the experience and then share it with others and people chime in. I love and, that. And so that, you know, in turn kind of leads to engagement. Now we got into the pandemic, we did a survey and we're like, hey, you know, can't really do these. What do you guys want? They're like money, give us money. Right? So, <laughs> of course, so, right? <laughs> so, but but our, our partner there, they were pretty quick to, um, you know, come up with experiences that were pandemic friendly. Um, and now that we're coming out of it, we're back to, you know, kind of some experiences. That's awesome. and, and so, you know, at the end of the day, though, I think, you know, so that that really embodies tacit, right? Everything we're doing, it's all implied, right? So a lot of times you're on a conference call and says, you know, does everybody agree with that? Dead silence. And I don't matter what company you're in, that happens everywhere. So we have this kind of standing joke. We, you know, at every meeting when we do our check-ins, I, I, the definition of, you know, implicit is it is implied, you know, you know if silence is, you know, if, if silence is president, it's, it's implied. So we get a big kick out of when nobody answers. We say, well, it's implicit that everybody just agreed with what I said because nobody disagreed. Tacit consent. And it's tacit, right? We say, all right, tacit consent. It's exactly what we say. Um, you know, but the, the idea is that, you know, if we, if we make our employees the highest priority um, and then we make our customers the second highest priority, it all works really, really well. And we give our employees a universe to work in. Now, what, what do we struggle with, right? We struggle with rest, time off, capacity, utilization, um, you know, all of the things that can lead to burnout. And, yeah. 
you know, in a hot job market that, that is now, right, you know, highest number of resignations in April, um, you know, we're at risk for people who, you know, that are, you know, pushing burnout. So we're paying really close attention to this. And we had our second survey in a row, still highly engaged, or what we're called extremely engaged. We had one survey that we dropped from extremely to highly, and it was right after we made the changes in the pandemic. Um, so we expected that, uh, but we still stayed highly. But um, our, our measurement on rest got worse, even after we put a plan in to address it, right? So we're going to have to get that? rid of um, Because we're, we're really lean and yeah. we're really busy. Yeah. We're super busy. Um, we've got, you know, number one health system in the world um, as, a, as a customer. We've got the largest independent cardiology practice and we have hundreds of customers. And, you know, we've got a lot of customers in the ambulatory space and, you know, they're owners of their practices and it's their money. And it doesn't matter if it's $10 or a million dollars, you, you're, you better be there. Right. And it better work. And so, so, you know, we, we, you know, everybody's over, over capacity. And so um, we, we learned an invalid, a really valuable lesson, you know, you know, during the pandemic, it was how to run lean. And what that ended up doing was, improving a lot of our benchmark numbers because of reduction in expenses and growth on, on the top yeah. side. Um, uh, and the revenue stayed really strong and our, you know, we could, our days of collection, what we thought would take longer. We actually got faster at it, all sorts of, you know, so by our, by all the benchmarks of the SaaS based company, we improved dramatically. Um, and we moved way out into the right, you know, you know, cat, you know, unicorn status in some, in some benchmarks. So, you know, board got used to that. Uh, investors got used to that, and so we're trying to balance the shareholder value of how do you how do you balance that? So you, you know, we're, we're very we're, we're we're being judicious about how we how we uh, recapitalize the capacity um, to offset some of that. And so um, you know, we're 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 gonna you know I think we're you know, thinking very creatively about how we do that. And we've got we're enlisting the employees to solve the problem with us. Oh, that's and great. I think that's one of the things where um, where we consistently get, and this is the management team, not just me, where we consistently have a, our strength, one of our biggest strengths is leadership integrity um, and leadership availability. And the AI of our surveys um, weights the importance of all these different things that we measure every individually, every survey. And that always comes up as a very heavy weight and shows up as a strength. So we know we've got a good ability uh, to manage, and we've got really transparent and communicative, and um, uh, uh, employees that feel safe about being uh, in an environment where they can voice their their opinions. We we actually have a way for people to do it completely anonymous. We have another system if you don't want to if you don't want to use the surveys. And but it doesn't seem like your employees do that. It seems like they're very fully transparent. It's funny. We yeah, because we get these anonymous. Hey, somebody was doing whatever or whatever, and and we make you know. I we always have a we have a process now. We respond, and then somebody will email and go, "Hey, that was me." Um, <laughs> so we're like, it was supposed to be anonymous, right? So, um, but it but it lends to the trust, right? Yeah, they're, they're not afraid to do that, right? Yeah, no, it's good. And where like what's on the horizon for you guys? What's like? How does the future look? Yeah, the future is bright, right? Um, I almost want to say I got to wear shades, but I won't do it. I, oops, I said it. Um, yeah, um, so, you know, there's I, I, right now for us, it's what do we say no to, right? Um, it's not what we say yes to. Um, we've got a, you know, there's been a lot of consolidation, a lot of acquisition activity. The first 90 days of the year is almost $4 billion in acquisitions uh, just in our space. There's been some more recent activity of you know folks on one other end of the market moving into the to our space called the diagnostics. Um, so 
we know that there's great opportunity for us if people like that are interested. Um, we're, we're really focused on execution right now. We've got a full plate. We, we've got a plan. We're going to stick to that. And um, But with the time warp that we went through, right, it just fast forwarded. Now, what happened was the kind of the nascent market of telehealth um, has, you know, that's an umbrella, really, when you, they, and so you have things, you know, called RPM or remote patient monitoring. These are like vital signs. This is your scale, your uh, blood pressure cuff, your, right. um, your SpO2 monitor for your blood oxygen. Um, and then you've got uh, more virtual care, which is care management. You know, how do I get you registered? How do I get you connected to a doctor? How do I manage reporting? How do I communicate with you? Um, and then you've got diagnostics where you've got to get people in to do their tests. You're doing tests remotely in their home. You know, uh, phones now are becoming medical devices because you can use computer vision for urine analysis, take a picture of your stick and boom, you've got a diagnostic test. I mean, it's pretty Amazing. impressive. Um, you know, blood work, things like that. Um, you know, so, so there's all of these kind of what I'll call them tangential markets. And so we kind of fit under that, you know, telehealth umbrella. Yeah. We're a diagnostic tool that kind of runs remote patient monitoring to virtual care. Um, so, you know, the way that market is today is that it's taking shape in terms of what they call the hospital without walls or, you know, a hospital at home. So CMS came out with this thing called hospital without walls or HWOW. And what they've done is they've already established a certain number of criteria that a patient has to meet in order to become qualified or registered as a patient to be treated in their home or a patient in the home for, or a hospital at home. And there are certain protocols you have to go through. And there's different grades in terms of acuity, meaning levels of severity from low acuity to high acuity. And most of the stuff they're doing now is kind of the, you know, the, the bigger stuff, lung disease, some, some heart, heart attacks, some heart disease stuff, uh, as well as some other things. Um, there's a, there's over hundred hospitals that have adopted this, uh, you know, 20 to 30 health systems, uh, that have adopted this in um, roughly half the U S number of States. Um, so this is a real thing. Uh, the Mayo Clinic and Kaiser both jointly put hundred million dollars into a company called medically home. This is a company that's focusing on, uh, acute care, which is a hospital is what they call an acute care setting. So they are, they're looking at, you know, creating the hospital at home. And then there's a number of payers, um, that are looking at how to deal with hospital at home because right. um, this is how it'll it'll go. And so when you look at a hospital, it all works really well because you've got a radiology department, a cardiology department, a psychology department, a laboratory, a pharmacy, um, and then you've got your EMR that kind of connects it all together. But that doesn't exist in the home. So how do you do cardiology, radiology, behavioral health? Yeah, how do you care, do that care virtually management? and make it a hospital virtually? Right, and, and right now it's hundreds of different of companies all vying for a little piece of what they do. Right. And health systems are trying to standardize on this, that, or the other. So we look at it that um, more, less about the, the technology, and we start to look more at the, the treatments um, because where accountable care organization is, where value-based care is going, where um, what's called bundled payments, where they'll say, look, right. we're not going to do fee for service. You know, you're not going to do a this test and get reimbursed, you're going to get so much money for treating these conditions and you get a bundle of money and you can do what you want with it, but you know, you run out of money. That's it. You figure out how to do it. So, you know, this we're, is the we're, way it's going. This is the way it's going. Yeah. This, this train has left the station. And so. And where do you guys fit in with all this? Yeah. So the diagnostic so, part, right? Yeah. So in the hospital, you have the ICU, 
where you have a bunch of really high-end monitors, very expensive, and they're doing yeah. what we call real-time telemetry. And telemetry is just a term for wireless communication. You can put, you can do it in consumer electronics telemetry. Um, your, your house is actually telemetry with your Wi-Fi. Um, yep. So, but we're doing, you know, um, you know, more medical. Which, so, there's 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 uh, high acuity or you know continuous or real-time telemetry where people in the ICU, very sick, somebody sitting at the desk, watching all the heartbeats go by, calling the doctors, meeting when there's an emergency, et cetera. And these guys um, then, are still in the home. That's but and that's in the hospital. We're still that's in the home. In the hospital. Yeah. Okay. But good. in the hospital, then okay. you get down, like if you get discharged out of the out of the ICU, you go to kind of a periodic monitor. So it's a little okay. thing that rolls around on the cart. They come in, take your blood pressure, take your temperature, do your respirations, they write it down in their hand, right? Um, I worked for a company, we automated that. Um, so um of course so, you did. But the but the um in the in the home that those kinds of departments don't exist, right? So there's, it's very common, like in a radiology department, you might have what call, they call it a 3T magnet and a 1T. And these are just the power of the magnets. So not all your patients need a 3T, you know, some of them need a 1T. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a pregnant mom, you get the OB, you get a ultrasound, you know, quite often. And then yeah. one time you go in and you get, you might get a 3D. It's a, it might be a different machine. Not all your machines have 3D, right? And so we know that, the, the hospital environment has to coalesce somehow in the home, these departments. And we know that um, you know, our device, although interesting, is irrelevant. It's, it, you know, come back to my saying, devices are gonna change, right? So they're gonna get smaller, they're gonna get, we're already injecting them. Um, right. We're gonna eat them, we're gonna swallow them. You know, we, it, there's a thing called transesophageal where you swallow a little thing and it goes down your heart and you do a little ultrasound from the inside of your esophagus, pull it back out. Um, so this stuff, or it's gonna, that's just going to happen, right? And so, you know, we're not banking on the device, although you always have to have an acquisition device because where else are you going to get the data? We're banking on the back end, the platform, right? So, you know, and the idea of an agnostic platform for device connectivity in the home where you're looking at your vitals, your blood pressure, your SpO2, you're looking for some level of ECG that maybe not diagnostic, but it's indicative of things to diagnostic ECG, to respiratory, um, you know, spirometry, uh, you know, plethora of, plethora, of, plethora of things, right? This is decades um, to come. I mean, this is like decades worth of work. I mean, it's already here, but it's moving. Like, yeah. And, and the only thing that made it possible right now was the pandemic. And it, it's sad because of what happened because of the pandemic. And, and you know, I, I rue the next day when the next one comes, but, you know, yeah, I'm sure we'll see one uh, right. in our lifetimes. Um, but it, the way it drove adoption for physicians to adopt, the way it drove the government to change policy and the way it forced healthcare providers, the venture arms, there's a lot of, there's a lot of healthcare companies that have venture arms that spend a lot of money in innovation, trying to improve care. And that, like you said, fast forwarded as 10 years. And so it is here and now. And so right now it's a system of systems. We're starting to see the consolidation in our verticals, right? From what we call screening cardiac screening, like your walk, Apple watch right. tells you you got a problem to diagnostics, diagnostics. Like, or to therapeutics where, Hey, I'm either going to put you on some medication or I'm going to stick something in your body. And, Which you know, is do a the treatment part, right? Right. Exactly. And then that's long-term treatment. When you get something implanted, you're and that's there for a long all time. All eventually going to go on this one platform or a platform or well, platforms, I mean, we're, right? We're, I think, I think you're going to have probably multiple vendors that will have those platforms, but I think yeah. it's going to consolidate, right? There's hundreds of companies uh, in the, in the radiology world. It used to be a hundred companies. Now there's five really big ones. Well, this will be a time machine. So looking back, what? 
what looking from 10 years from now or 20 years from now, they're going to look back at their podcast and they're going to say he was Scott Stewart long was spot on. Right. Um, yeah, well, you know, I hope so. And I, I, um, and I, I say this, you know, with, with humility, one of the tenets that I've kind of grown into is the ability to see the future. And it's, it's come from a lot of bad um, uh, or failures, right? Because of making the wrong assumptions, thinking things were going to go a particular way. And I would have been wrong about this, you know, had we not gone through a pandemic, I would have said, we're not going down this path. We're going to go a totally, I, in fact, we were, we're going on a different path. Wow. Um, but we're, we're able to be nimble and flexible. And because of the changing market conditions and the fact that we're already this high quality, very high quality device doing already doing telemetry and the demand for always on at the consumer level, because my watch is always sending data, right? Um, and you know now there's all sorts of body sensors you can wear. And right. I've always, had a, I've always right. had a heart rate monitor to go exercise with, that kind of stuff. Um, the demand for that means the old style way of doing things of wearing it for you know two weeks or 30 days and mailing it in. Nobody, the consumers won't even accept it. No, they won't um, even accept it. In, in a world of always on, right? And so I, I'm, I'm certain this is going to happen. And what we want to do is where a lot of companies are going and creating smaller, easier patches to wear, you know, one lead, lower fidelity, um, good for certain things, what we call a low acuity market, just like you're, you know, in your hospital, you have a high acuity ICU and a low acuity med surge environment where you have these rolling around monitors. Um, it's that same concept. And so, you know, we're going to lean the other direction. We're going to go more high acuity. We want to throw more leads at it. We want to throw more wires at it. You know, we want to treat the really sick people um, because, that day is coming when that's going to happen when you know the hospital at home really really catches fire and it it couldn't happen without the physician adoption and it couldn't happen without the government putting the mechanics in place to enable that those Those two other points so it is a trifecta right it is yeah and if you look back in time all the way back to you know the beginning of medicare the the things that has changed healthcare is incentives or disincentives and then the ability for physicians to adopt those incentives or disincentives. A lot of major companies, Microsoft has come at this market. You know, a lot of companies have come in. Big companies say they're going to come in and change it, right? And nobody has. And nobody a lot, has. A lot of you know conglomerates got together and tried to come in and try to change it. Um, you know, but our 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 you know, so we got a market force that works, and then we just put all the control into the hands of the, of the world's number one healthcare system, and they they got their hands on it. They've got those relationships with all those payers. Um, they've got all those relationships with all the, uh, in fact, they have the third largest clinical laboratory behind Quest and LabCorp in the U.S. I did not so know that. They're already in a large amount of facilities throughout the U.S. already. So the ability for a provider to have already established that model and then go to market with us to establish that model again, um, we feel really good about the kind of what we're talking about is that this is going to happen. Um, and we feel um, just blessed to be here. I think, you know, b- by hook or crook or a whole lot of luck um, and, a, and a bunch of perseverance and resilience. Yeah. And resilience. It was funny. I got asked once uh, I was uh, being interviewed by a Swedish company um, and it was, a, it was a great interview because they're more interested in kind of you personally. Right. And so they were asking all sorts of fun questions and they asked me to describe myself in one word. And I fumbled the question. I just, what did you I, say? I, I, I can't even remember what I said, but I remember <laughs> going home and talking about it at home. And they're like, oh, I know what that is. You're resilient. Um, and I was like, you know, that's true. Um, and, and, and so 
I think that's what's allowed us to persevere in the market through the pandemic. And I give that as the hallmark of the company, not just me, because the, the, the group of people that we're working with, it's the one of the most resilient group of people that I've ever seen in my entire life. Their ability to stay level-headed and not get overly excited through some seriously tumultuous times is just been nothing short of amazing. And I'm just honored to be in their presence. That's awesome. Well, it couldn't happen to a better company. It couldn't happen to a better CEO. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'll, I appreciate that. So I want you to tell me something a little bit about you. Like, who the hell are you? Like, where, where did you come from? What planet, right? Yeah. Like, what do you do outside of the, like, like, this just, like, it seems like you're totally like immersed in this, but you have a passion outside of this. You're, you've been different from day one. Like, who are you? Yeah. Who that um, little Stuart? Yeah. Yeah. Well, funny enough, little Stuart was my favorite book growing up. Believe it or not, um, really, because everybody kept giving me the book, giving it to my parents. When you're old enough, he'll read this. I finally read it, and I was, I was actually attached to it. Um, so it's it's really special now uh, to, to even to to watch the movie. Um, yeah, so um, you know, I I, I um, it's funny. I was in high school. I was kind of a late bloomer, and so all my friends, you know, kind of they were all bigger on the football team. They all had a car. I didn't have a car. My parents wouldn't get me. Unless I had to buy my own car. Um, and, you know, so, um, so I kind of, I, I, I learned, um, I'll say that the gift of the gap, I was the one who never got in trouble, even though I was totally involved in the trouble. Um, and my, my principal way back the in the instigator. day, was like, he's like, how are you not involved in what is going on here? And I'm but like, you, I, well, I was. I yeah. was the and, catalyst. Uh, I was the instigator. Got, no one knew it was me. Yeah. And um, we, we got, um, interviewed by this company came in and I was a junior, I think in high school and they were going to hire. So they selected a bunch of us to go in and um, they ended up asking me to, to go to work for them. And all my friends were like, how, how, how are you? you? How, I'm like, you know, the little guy, you know, he's the run, right? It pays to be the little guy. It pays to yeah, be the and nerd, right? I <laughs> realized that the, in that, and I asked, I asked them, I'm like, well, why me? And they're like, well, you seemed like you were really listening. And I remembered at the time, <laughs> that I do, I nod my head and I would be doing this, you know, the whole thing. And I realized the value of listening. Right. Um, and so I've always been, you know, uh, kind of, uh, um, a bit of a talker. Right. And, and, um, I never quite agreed. Uh, my father, grandfather was a, was a minister and I would sit in church and listen to him and go, man, none of that makes any sense to me. You know, the, the women are supposed to stay home and cook and you know what? My, my mom works, right? That doesn't make any okay, sense. Okay, not right? only have you been a disruptor, but you're irreverent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes, and so, um, you know, but that, that you know, so, but but I, I, I've never wavered from, you know, altruism, you know, I, I believe that there is a higher power that, you know, that, that exists, you know, I, uh, I believe that's what keeps us humble, humil you know, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, helps us preserve our, our, um, uh, you know, self-pity uh, and, and, and resentment and things like that. Um, and I and I know those are things that I watch out for, you know, just as a human. So I study kind of the human psyche and that's why I think I like sales so much and, and why I like you know, doing the job that I do because I get to be really broad. But but kind of what makes me is I'm, I'm enormously driven. Um, and whether it's being a great father or a great husband or a really good friend, um, you know, or <laughs> the guy with the best lawn on the, on the street, you know. Do you um, have you the know, best I'm, lawn on the street? No, and I'm struggling right now because it's really, <laughs> it's really irritating. So, um, but it's, it's looking good though. Okay. It's okay. Around. Okay. Um, I'll send pictures. Uh, okay. So, but, but, you know, kind of where my passions lie, right? So I, I, I've been running for over 30 years. Uh, I'll never forget my first run. I went out and ran two miles in the dead of winter 
And I came back and thought, oh my God, I'm never going to do that. And I was in high school, played sports and I did stuff like that, but, and I'd never done, tried to run any long distance. So a long story short, I got way into triathlons and marathons and all this kind of good stuff. And um, ultimately I got into uh, mountaineering and ice climbing. So uh, one of my big passions is ice climbing. And, me. I did and not so, know this. yeah, so there's a, like a freak a really, of nature. <laughs> there's a really good book about climbing and it changed my life about, you know, life in general. And it's like advice I've given my kids when they're having a tough time. And my, when, when you climb, you're only looking for your next hold. And, you know, and with, you know, with an ice ax in your hand, it's, it's pretty, you've got to be pretty particular about where you put it. And so you're not thinking about where you just came from. And you're definitely not thinking about the top, right? Because you're missing, you know, you can't miss in the middle, right? And so it's the thing that allows you to stay very present, right? You know, living very much in the moment. Um, and so um, that, I enjoy it because it causes that for me to be that way. And then that translate that in present time, because if you don't, man, you're dead. Yes. Yes. And I, you know, I've got some great video of stuff that I do. And then I go back and watch it. I'm thinking, what was I thinking doing that right in the moment? Um, But I absolutely love it. Um, But what I love more than that, um, I, I, it's funny. um, I told my wife, when we met, I said, Hey, someday I'm going to learn to play the guitar and uh, I want to take up photography. Those are two things I'm going to do. Just FYI, when I do it, give me the space. I, I, I gave up on the guitar. I can't do it. Okay. I, not only can I not You're play not the guitar, inclined. I can't sing and play the guitar at the same time. And I just can't <laughs> sing either. So I, I, I learned the introduction to Hotel California, which was great. Okay, was good. Over again, okay, um, good. Because that's a good song. You can do that apart. So, um, so I, I, I took up photography in 2015. And um, I, I know what I'm going to do when I retire. Um, it has absolutely consumed me. It's my therapy. And... I, uh, I uh, finally decided after, what was it now, five years of uh, work and more than 10,000 hours in the, in, the, in, the pro- in the process of processing images, Photoshop, you know, things like that, um, I decided to test some of my work. And there's uh, uh, three, three to four pretty big uh, photography. It's kind of the Tonys and the Oscars of, of the photography world. Uh, there's a site that publishes less than 1% of the submissions. I've now got nine awards and publications nine there. i i won as uh what they call a nominee so i was a uh there i was like a uh, you know an honorable mention for the fine art photography awards for 2021 in the category of architecture that's what it's my one Holy of my go-to God. styles architecture and then i also won in uh, as commended in the uh what's called the sienna uh, creative Phot- photography awards um because i do uh, i specialize in fine art black and white, long exposure, architecture, photography. It's, it's quite a mouthful. Um, <laughs> so, so it's, You're it's, an it's architecture, too, right? Yeah, it's architecture with the use of long exposure uh, to blend skies and water. And then I spend a great deal of time um, working in black and white to create a piece of art that's representative of you know, something that I want to try to represent. And I did a, I did a picture for uh, I did, uh, New York City uh, as a series in the New York City Photo One. Um, it was titled Rise um, because New York City, to me, um, a great city, has uh, an incredible ability to just rise above, you know, terrorism, pandemic, you know, uh, thing after thing. Um, and, and there was a couple other photos, but that that one um, I'm pretty proud of. And so That's awesome. I, 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 I absolutely love it. Um, and I, if uh, if I've got a break, if any time, you know, you know, during the month, you know, I'm out shooting. So no TV for you. Oh, I, I sneak a little bit in, you know, when everybody's in bed, you know, I mean, how does he have time to do yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. When everybody's in bed, it's really late. Yeah, it's really late at night, like 7 45 PM. <laughs> and I'm asleep by eight o'clock. 
I get, I get up really early though. So. That's good though. That's good yep. though. So tell us, tell the listeners how they can connect with you, how they can find you. Yeah, I'm hard to find actually. I'm a little bit of an extrovert that um, craves introversion, right? So um, if you try to find me on Facebook, you, you won't get much. You'll get my profile picture and, and my header. Um, you can certainly find me on Facebook, uh, but you can certainly find me on our website, infobionic.com. Uh, my email is my first name and my last name separated by the period, stuart.long at uh, um, uh, infobionic.com. And then I'm on LinkedIn. So you just search for Stuart Long on LinkedIn. That's where I am. Okay, good. Awesome. Um, so we know how people can get a hold of you. We know that you're this crazy uh, CEO that doesn't like assholes in the, in the environment, does rock climbs, does photography, and is on a disruption path for the next, I don't know, how long are you going to be at this? 10, 20, 30 I don't years? Think, I don't know that I'll stop because uh, if I retire and go into photography, I'm sure there's some disruption that needs to happen there. That's, yes, let's work yeah. on that. Yeah. So, and art is art, right? Um, there's uh, it's what's, what's, what's interesting is what I've noticed about photography. Is, you know, kind of models in the streets or things like that. Um, very, very popular, but now everybody's like, uh, you know, so it's, um, so I'm, I'm sure there, you know, that that's enough, I think, to kind of probably keep me busy, but, um, you know, I'll, I don't think I'll ever stop disrupting whether it's, you know, changing how I mow my lawn or care for my kids or. I don't think you will either. I I do want pictures of the lawn though. Okay. We might even post it on, on, uh, you know, this podcast. It's funny. I, I actually, I, I, I signed up with a SAS, a lawn SAS company uh, for my lawn care. And they're, they (laughs) keep sending me emails, send us a picture of your lawn. Cause I've got their first couple of treatments. in. I I actually just took pictures of my lawn. Okay. I want to see it for sure. We'll put it on. (laughs) Stuart, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And um, thank you, by the way. Yes, you're very welcome. And listen, everybody, if you learned something today, or even if you laugh, tell someone about the podcast. And um, we thank very much for Stuart Long being on. And I will say this. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption podcast, where we talk to leaders that transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.